Democrats say the coronavirus is causing a tremendous panic throughout America, or it will if they have anything to do with it. A sobbing Chuck Schumer, who seems to have a job in the government somewhere, said in a speech to anyone who would listen, quote, this could cause more deaths than the repeal of net neutrality. We can all remember how that created apocalyptic scenes of people dying in the streets, begging for just one small drop of neutrality to keep them going, while Republicans laughed heartlessly, then slaughtered the few survivors by pulling out of the Paris Climate Accord. And okay, that only happened in Democrat speeches, but with the coronavirus, it could be be real, or at least we can always hope, unquote. Congressman Adam Schiff woke up in a state of Christmas-like wonder to discover that the Trump administration was actually facing a crisis that he hadn't personally created. Schiff, in a statement released to his favorite fluffy teddy bear named Chuck Todd, said, quote, This isn't like all that crap we made up during impeachment about the Constitution being in danger or whatever garbage we were spewing. This is real. People could actually get sick and die. Oh, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy. Unquote. Schiff then danced around the living room in his plaid onesie until it was time to have a hot cup of cocoa. Although there are currently only a few cases of the virus in the U.S., President Trump has sent a request to Congress for emergency funds to handle any further outbreak. But Democrats say it's not enough because Trump forgot to include billions of dollars in waste and graft. And without waste and graft, what's the point of being a Democrat? Some Democrats are also protesting because Trump has secured the borders, lessened our dependence on China, and brought home manufacturing jobs all of which could slow the advance of the virus in the homeland, which Democrats say is unfair and anyway ruins all the fun. Trigger warning, I'm Andrew Clavin, and this is The Andrew Clavin Show. I feel hunky-dunky, life is tickety-boo. Birds are winging, also singing, hunky-dunky-dee-doo. Ship-shaped, ipsy-topsy, the world is a bitty zing. It's a wonderful day, hooray, hooray, it makes me want to sing. Oh, hooray, hooray. Oh, hooray, Well, there's never a wrong time to remind you of some brilliant thing I said that's turned out to be so incredibly true. And since the Trump administration is facing a serious event in the spread of the coronavirus, this is a good time to remind you that the point and purpose of the news media during a Republican administration is to create a continuous atmosphere of crisis when there is no crisis, so that when a real crisis arises, it will feel like an even bigger crisis than it is and that it's all the Republicans' fault. We saw this during the George W. Bush administration. During the Nixon administration, the press invented the term non-denial denial. During the W administration, I invented the term non-scandal scandal. Everything was a scandal for W. The Supreme Court halting the election recount, that was a scandal. Deregulating religious charities, oh boy, a scandal. Limiting stem cell research, what a terrible scandal. Once when W uh, quoted Jesus saying, judge not lest you be judged, he was reminding Christians to be kind to gay people, even if they thought it was homosexuality was a sin. A newspaper ran a headline saying, Bush quotes Bible while condemning homosexuality. That was a scandal. Then Hurricane Katrina happened. After a hundred years of Democrat corruption in New Orleans, during which money intended to shore up the levees went into the pockets of Democrat politicians, the hurricane hit and the levees broke and the city flooded. The Democrat governor of Louisiana refused federal help until it was too late and the media blamed Bush. The press falsely reported panic and murder and acts of cannibalism in New Orleans. Kanye West announced that Bush didn't care about black people and it stuck. It really did hurt Bush. Why? Well, the disaster in New Orleans was real. 
Bush made a stupid comment, he mishandled a photo op, and he took the blame for a weather disaster exacerbated by Democrat corruption because the press had previously succeeded in creating the illusion of scandal and malfeasance where none existed. Everybody thought, oh yeah, this is what the Bush administration is like. The coronavirus is likely going to get worse. That's what viruses do. But we don't know by how much. Trump's immigration clampdown, his rejiggering of our relationship with China, and his America First rebuilding of our job market will help to keep it in check. Those are all good things. And he seems to have a good team in place at the Institute of Health. But Trump will say something stupid because he does that. And he will make mistakes because everybody does that. And the press will be ready. So remember this, the media-created sense of crisis during this administration has been continuous and continually false. In three Trump years, there has not yet been one single real crisis, not one until now. Everything has been tickety-boo. So don't let them suck you in. Don't panic. Don't let them drag you into discussing every little misstep or misstatement as if it were a catastrophe. Do what the doctors tell you to do. Stay home if you get sick. Keep your snotty little kids home if they get sick. Wash your hands after touching a socialist and get your news from us at The Daily Wire, where we'll do our best to tell you the simple, unpanicky truth. All right, we're going to talk about the coronavirus and we're going to talk about the press. There's a lot going on in the press today that's really interesting. And we have an interview with uh, Ben Weingarten, who has written a new book about Ilhan Omar. That's all coming up. But first, LifeLock, lock up your life because people want to steal it. You ever think about this? Some guy is sitting around trying to steal your identity. What kind of a person lives a life like that? But you know they are definitely out there and you want to protect it. Your personal info, especially during tax season, like your name, your social security number, can be emailed and shared more than usual. So criminals can steal info from your devices and sell it on the dark web or use it to commit identity theft. You need LifeLock. It's the number one most recognized brand in identity theft protection. LifeLock monitors for use of your personal info, info alerts you to possible suspicious activity. And if you become a victim of identity theft, this is a big one, a dedicated identity restoration specialist will work to fix it because it's really hard to fix this stuff once people mess it up. No one can prevent all identity theft or monitor all transactions at all businesses, but having LifeLock means one less thing to stress about during tax season and all the time. Join now and save up to 25% off your first year. Just go to LifeLock.com slash Clavin. That's LifeLock.com. Dot com slash Clavin for 25% off. And the big secret is, how do you spell Clavin? <laughs> if, you, if you don't know how to spell Clavin by this time, there are no E's in Clavin. Have I ever told you that before? Tune in to our Super Tuesday backstage show. It's going to be a long one. We're going to cover the whole thing. I will be I'll be drinking so much, I'll pass out. Knowles will smoke so much, his head will, his tongue will fall off. And we won't have to say anything because Ben will do all the talking. 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern, March 3rd. Uh, it's Super Tuesday, and you want to know what's going on. Uh, what else? The Clavenless Weekend is coming. So order, pre-order The Nightmare Feast. It is published March 3rd. This is the second book in the Another Kingdom trilogy. You will want it. It's beautifully made. You want to read it again, even if you listen to it. And if you haven't listened to it, reading it is also fun. Nightmare Feast, Andrew Claven. You probably don't know how to spell it, but try and find it on Amazon. There are no <laughs> so we play these things a lot, but we're going to play one of them again because it's important to remember when we're going to talk about the coronavirus. But while we're talking about the coronavirus, Remember, this is the way that the news media has covered Trump for three years. This is cut number 10. This is 
the worst. The worst. The worst. Terrible, horrible, no good, worst first 100 days ever. Worst first 100 days that we've seen in modern times. It's being called the worst 100 days probably um, since it's been tracked. You seriously believe this is a turning point for Republicans? And for this president. In many ways, the dam broke today. You could see Republicans join the chorus of impeachment. It begins to undermine uh, uh, his presidency. This could be a turning point. There does seem to be a, a feeling of this time is different. Thursday could be the worst day of Donald Trump's presidency. Today was, really was, as it was predicted to be, the worst day of the Trump presidency. And Donald Trump knows it. It's a turning point. Is this a turning point? There is so much noise, it would be easy to miss an actual turning point. The single worst day in the single worst week. It is very difficult to imagine many Republicans in Washington rallying to the president's side. I know we've said this time and time again, but I'll say it again. There was a turning point. Trump's presidency is effectively over. CNN sucks. <laughs> so just remember, that's the emotional atmosphere, the emotional atmosphere they've been creating. That's the point and purpose of what they do. That is why they do it. It is not, oh, they get exposed here for saying this is false and that's false. Still, it is a constant drumbeat. It does create an emotional atmosphere in which what happens next, if Trump makes a mistake or if he says something he shouldn't say, that's the atmosphere to which it goes. It's like throwing a match into a, a room full of gas gas uh, of gas, you know, it just blows up. So the Washington Post has a story about how it says open governments are struggling to encourage responsibility about a growing pandemic without inspiring panic. Russia appears to be trying to do just the opposite. Evidence suggests Moscow is spreading propaganda designed to stoke anxiety about the virus and distrust in authorities' efforts to fight it. Citizens in China are suffering not from a deluge of misleading material, but from a dearth of open discussion, U.S. officials say. Thousands of Russian-linked accounts on social media have been posting uh, almost near-identical messages about the coronavirus to spread panic, and the Chinese have a different problem. Officials are using their ability to monitor WeChat accounts, even outside the country, to censor expatriates, but, but they have great literacy programs. <laughs> That's the important thing. Really? <clears throat> really? Yes, literacy because there's no comparing bad. Just remember, just remember who the socialists are. And just remember that when you talk about medical innovations, when you talk about uh, closing borders, when you talk about taking care of the public and, and giving public real information, not panicking information, it's freedom, it's capitalism, it's democracies that do that, not socialist governments, no matter what, how many people there can read. All right, let's take a look at what's going on. So the, obviously, obviously the coronavirus has caused problems, has caused problems in the stock markets. And, and you know, this is the thing. They keep hitting Trump for caring about the stock markets. Of course, you should care about the stock markets as part of the financial system. And it's an important thing. And he, he cares about that. And he's a financial guy. Uh, this has been true in global markets. Uh, Japanese Prime Minister uh, Abe uh, has asked schools to close through the spring break, uh, which normally means early April in a bid to contain the outbreak there. Iran said its death toll reached 26 with 245 confirmed cases in China. The government, government has announced another consecutive fall in new cases, though it's hard to trust what they say. So Trump did the right thing. He had a press conference with his team from the, the medical team. Uh, here is his statement uh, from Cut 11 saying things are not so bad. We have, through some very good early decisions, decisions that were actually ridiculed at the beginning, we closed up our borders to flights coming in from certain areas, uh, areas that were hit by the coronavirus and hit pretty hard. And we did it very early. I, a lot of people thought we shouldn't have done it that early, and we did, and it turned out to be a very good thing. 
and the number one priority from our standpoint is the health and safety of the American people. And that's the way I viewed it when I made that decision. So, you know, he, he has done a lot of stuff that is going to make this easier. It's, look, a virus is a virus. It doesn't care whether you're a Democrat or Republican. He put Mike Pence in charge of the project uh, to, uh, you know, to treat this, which I got to say is a thankless task because we know it will get worse. I mean, a virus is going to get worse. So whatever goes wrong, it's like, I don't, don't look at me. It's Mike Pence. So, so you should, I wouldn't have been surprised if Pence was just like sweating under his collar, you know, like, yeah, this is great. I'm in charge of the coronavirus effort. But the thing about this is, is that the Democrats have really been awful. This is a moment. It is, you know, it, these moments do exist when the right thing to do is to hold your fire and wait and see what happens. It's not that they can't do the political thing if there really is trouble. But at this point, the right thing to do is to shut up and support the president and support the efforts. Instead, this is what you get from Pelosi. This is cut nine. Senate has a proposal. We'll have something similar, which um, addresses the need for the professionals to be in place. The president let go a couple of years ago, never replaced them. This is shameful. Uh, puts forth a proposal now that is meager, anemic, in terms of addressing as well. Uh, the, with Ebola, we did $5 billion. Now they're trying to take the Ebola m- money and spend it here. So w- what he's doing is Late, too late, anemic. Hopefully we can make up for the loss of time. But it will have to have the professionals in place, the resources that are adequate, and, and not uh, be giving, using scare tactics about people coming back uh, to our country. She's become a crazed lunatic. It's, you know, it's complete Democrat crap. The game here is to uh, say, oh, it's not enough. Stuff all this garbage into this bill and use it to increase government spending. The Democrats do this all the time. And why shouldn't he take? There was something like $500 million from the Ebola money not used. Why shouldn't he take it back? Why? Because once you put your money in the government's hands, they never give it back. And why shouldn't he be careful about people coming back into the country? What the hell is she talking about? She's utterly in the wrong, 100% in the wrong. And it's a time to shut up anyway. Just just a day, just a day to go by and say, hey, you know, we're all going to work together to handle this. Two days, does it matter? And then they hit Trump for striking back because Trump, of course, is a dog. If a dog barks at Trump, he will walk back two blocks to kick it. But he strikes back against Pelosi's cut 13. I think Speaker Pelosi's incompetent. She lost the Congress once. I think she's going to lose it again. You know, she lifted my poll numbers up 10 points. I never thought that I would see that so quickly and so easily. Uh, I'm leading everybody. We're doing great. I don't want to do it that way. It's almost unfair if you think about it. But I think she's incompetent, and I think she's not thinking about the country. She knows it's not true. She knows all, all they're trying to do is get a political advantage. This isn't about political advantage. We're all trying to do the right thing. So, well, let's play the other cut, too, in which which he goes after the Democrats for the stock market, the cut 14. I think the financial markets are very upset when they look at the Democrat candidate standing on that stage making fools out of themselves. And they say, if we ever have a president like this, and there's always a possibility, it's an election, you know, who knows what happens, right? I think we're going to win. I think we're going to win by a lot. But when they look at the statements made by the people stand behind, standing behind those podiums, I think that has a huge effect. Yeah. had to do with the coronavirus? Oh, I think it did. I think it did. But I think you can add quite a bit of sell-off to what they're seeing. So 
you know, people then basically equate Trump and Pelosi and they say, well, Pelosi got political and Trump has to strike back and all this stuff. But just remember, just remember that Pelosi has the entire force of the news and entertainment media behind her. She's got all of that behind her. So when she talks, it's echoed and it's praised and it's repeated in the press. We saw that opening montage of the way the press has been hitting Trump continually when there was no crisis, when things were going absolutely great. Remember, all that stuff was manufactured, Russia collusion, manufactured impeachment, manufactured. None of that was real. And all of that was sold to us by the press. The entertainment industry, of course, is backing them up. So Trump is the only person with a voice powerful enough to defend himself. He is pugilistic. He does say things that I wish he didn't say sometimes. But the position that he's in, and this is the way the press, even the right-wing press, doesn't understand this about Trump. The position that he's in is that he is the only voice speaking up for him. And he's right about this. He is absolutely right about this. The other thing that he says is really important. What if, what if one of these clowns on the other side were to win the presidency in a disaster like this? Not a disaster, in a possible crisis like this. How dare you? How dare I? Here's here's Elizabeth Warren responding to all this. This is cut 17. The way I think about this is first we think about allocation, kind of of our overall approach. I'm going to be introducing a plan tomorrow to take every dime that the president is now spending on his racist wall at our southern border and divert it to work on the coronavirus. We also need someone in the White House who is coordinating all of the work and all of the messaging and all of the information. And we need someone who is not actively disqualified from doing that the way the vice president is. Pocahontas is not happy. What what nonsense. I mean, really, think about this for a minute. She's going to take all that money away from his wall, which is keep helping to secure the southern border so that people can come in freely when there's a pandemic going on everywhere but here. Good thinking, Liz. And and then, and then you've got uh, Bernie. Uh, he's talking about this on the. Uh, I, I won't play this, but he's talking about what a oh, what an idiot uh, Donald Trump is. But think about this, Bernie is a socialist. He's not just a socialist. He's really a communist. All that praise for Castro and Ortega and all these people. I mean, let, let's face it, the guy is constitutionally. I mean, in his constitution, not our constitution, is constitutionally a communist. Now let's think about this for a minute. Where where do you think the cures come from? Where do all the medical innovations come from? What medical innovation came out of the Soviet Union or Castro? All those people, all those wonderful people with their literacy programs in Cuba. (laughs) What did they invent? What did they invent? What did they cure? Gee, they had so many literacy programs. What did they invent? What did they cure? Whereas we here in America, the the because of capitalism, because of capitalism, the lifespan has just uh, increased so much over the last 40 years. You know, Dan Henninger had a column uh, today where he says uh, a Medicare for all system in the U.S. with minimal private hospitals or physicians would collapse beneath a real virus crisis. Medicare for all would smother the public private infrastructures in the U.S. that developed manufactures and distributes life-saving therapies for viruses. He says, imagine if for the past 40 years, the U.S. US healthcare system were run like Mr. Sanders' two favorite alternatives, the U.K.'s National Health Service or Healthcare in Canada. It's only a slight exaggeration to say we'd be dead. So whatever else you have to say about Donald Trump, capitalism is the way to go if you want to prevent viruses. All right. Do you want to look like me? (laughs) The question 
answers itself. The bags under my eyes are so big, I actually have to check them when I fly. But if you just haven't been able to improve the wrinkles and crow's feet and bags under your eyes, try Plexiderm, a clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates your wrinkles crow's feet and under eye bags in minutes. It lasts for hours and Plexiderm goes on clear so nobody will know you were using it unless you tell them, which I'm sure Plexiderm would appreciate. Why should I be the only one selling the product, right? I get, before I come on, I use makeup. I still look like this, but if you use Plexiderm, it will help those rings under your eyes. Go to tryplexiderm.com and use my code Claven for 50% off plus an additional $10 off. This offer is also available by calling 1-800-685-1292 and mentioning code Claven. Plexiderm is backed by a 30-day money-back guarantee. So visit tryplexiderm.com today and use code Claven at checkout. That's tryplexiderm.com. If you call, you don't have to know how to spell Claven, but if you write in, you do. There are no easy there are no ease in Clavin. It's K-L-A-V-A-N. So while we're discussing our really disgusting press, uh, our good friend James O'Keefe at Project Veritas really scored on them yesterday. He released a, when it, you know, uh, Project Veritas goes in with hidden cameras and sends in reporters to talk to people in left-wing establishments and expose them and show you what they say behind the scenes when they don't know they're on camera and they don't know who they're talking to. So he went in, he sent a, a reporter into ABC News and ABC News has suspended a veteran correspondent, David Wright, uh, because of the tapes from Project Veritas. I want to take a look at some of them because they're really telling about the press. I mean, you know, sometimes these, these hidden camera things, they catch people in sort of bloopers. They catch them saying something they shouldn't have said. But we all say things in private we shouldn't say. But this these tapes are really, really do expose something about the attitude of this mainstream press, the broadcast press, which still has, I think, 10 times the number of viewers put together that Fox News does. So all the cr- complaining about Fox News, this is where the real power is. So first he's talking, he catches David Wright, uh, this veteran correspondent, talking to an ABC producer whose name, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, I think it's Andy Fies. Andy Fies. And Wright actually boasts that he is a socialist. This is cut number one. You consider yourself a Democrat socialist? Or, yeah. I, like, more than that, I consider myself a socialist. It's terrible. I feel like it's like we like the truth suffers. The voters are poorly informed. Our bosses don't see an upside in doing the job that we're supposed to do, which is to you know, speak truth to power and help people do it. Again. People in New York are constantly, I think, fascinated by it. How can people like Donald Trump? How can people understand Cross the Hudson now and then and come out and spend some time, and you'll hear why. Now, that, that's a fascinating exchange because the first guy is right, and you hear him say, I'm a socialist, and we're not speaking truth to power. And then the other guy's the producer, and he says, these people never leave New York. They never leave New York. They do not know why people like Trump. Why do people like Donald Trump? He says, cross the Hudson, and you'll find out why. So you have two guys at ABC. If that, I'm surprised they haven't suspended the producer for saying that, because he's, he's the guy who's actually catching them out on what they do. ABC, remember, just to remind you, is the, is the uh, network that suppressed the Jeffrey Epstein story while Hillary Clinton was running for president. Uh, Clinton friend Jeffrey Epstein 
Also, the network that is run, the news department is run by George Stephanopoulos, who used to make a living suppressing women for Bill Clinton. Just a reminder. I, I know I've mentioned it once or twice before. Then they talk about something that I think has a lot of truth to it, where they just talk about the fact that news has become a profit-making business, and that's changed everything. This is cut two. Profit center, a, a, a promotion center. Like you can't watch Good Morning America without there being a Disney princess or a Marvel Avenger appearing. It's it's all self promotion, right? And promotion of the company, and also promotion of individuals within the company. Commercial imperative is incompatible with news. So. So this is something that really did happen. It happened in the 80s when I was in the news business, when there was a lot of, uh, you know, conglomeration of businesses and a lot of entertainment companies uh, took over news businesses. But also it happened when me as media spread and the news business wanted to compete, people started to say, you know, we can make money on the news. I was in I was in fights about this in the news business. I was in. It's the last time I ever had a screaming argument with somebody nose to nose where I actually thought we might come to blows was an argument over the way we treated the news in a major newsroom in New York City. And I was a news writer and we were being told just write about sex. That's all anybody cares about. Write about AIDS. That's the cares of condom sodomy that cares about. And I was saying, you know, the, the national budget is actually more important. We should cut. We don't necessarily have to cover things that people are interested in. We have to cover things that people should be interested in. That's our job. It can be the DJ's job to go out and talk about the other stuff. We had screaming arguments about it. Obviously, I lost that fight. I wound up I wound up in exile living in another country, and the guy I was fighting with ended up running one of the major uh, networks in the, in the country. So, so you can just tell who won that fight and who lost it. They're right about this. They are right about this. Once the news, it used to be because there were three networks that were governed by the FCC. They were, it was considered the public airwaves. The news was considered a public service that they did as uh, a way of paying for the, the privilege of, of being on the public airwaves. That system has fallen apart. So everybody is looking for clicks. Everybody, you know, somebody asked me the other day, I think it was like a trick question. He said, do you conservatives, do you, are you looking for clicks? I said, look, everybody is looking for clicks. The trick is to get clicks in an honest way. That's, that's the truth in any communications business. But once, the, uh, once commercialism takes over, then you really have lost your way. The final cut is the two of them talking about the way the news business treats voters. Why don't you like 
<laughs> we can't play the response to that, but he curses out Trump. The two guys are saying totally different things. Andy Fies is saying that we should get to know the voters, which is absolutely true. It is the problem with the broadcast networks. Why are they all in New York? Why don't they have don't they go out of their way to hire people who voted for Trump and put them in places of editorial responsibility? And you can say, well, why should they do that? Isn't that biased? It would not be biased. It would simply be balancing out the fact that no one at this point with editorial responsibility voted for Trump. And that's, I think, a big problem when half the country is supporting him and soon it'll be over half the country, one hopes. The other guy, though, is saying, I'm a socialist. I'm a socialist, and we're so afraid of being accused of being in the tank for the Democrats that we don't attack Trump enough. Now, that's a guy who's living in a fantasy world. Now, the other thing that's happening is that Donald Trump in the press, so that guy did get suspended. David Wright's been around a long time, but he did get suspended. Who knows whether he got suspended for being a socialist and uh, wanting more attacks on Trump or whether he got suspended for telling the truth that uh, commercialism has taken over the industry. Now, the thing that's the other thing that's happening, the other story is that the Trump uh, campaign is suing uh, the New York Times, a former newspaper, for a column that was written by Max Frankel, uh, basically saying that Trump colluded with the Russians, that they, that he may have done things legally, but he was basically in league with the, the Russians. And at uh, his press conference, a New York Times reporter confronted him about this. Uh, today, sued the New York Times for an opinion piece. Yeah. Is it your opinion or is it your contention that if people have an opinion contrary to yours, that they should be sued? Well, when they get the opinion totally wrong, as the New York Times did, and frankly, they've got a lot wrong over the last number of years. So we'll see how that, let that work its but way through the opinion, courts. Right? No, no, if you, if you read it, you'll see it's beyond an opinion. That's not an opinion. That's something much more than an opinion. They did a bad thing, uh, and there'll be more coming. The and, failing yeah. New York Times, which is like so bad. <laughs> you know, I really believe in suing newspapers for libel if they actually lie about you. He will never win this case because it is an opinion column. You, you know, the president of the United States, you can have almost any opinion about him you want. You should be able to have any opinion about him you want. But here's a, an ad that a Trump pack took out against uh, Joe Biden uh, with a quote from Barack Obama's book. This is cut six. Biden promised to help our community. It was a lie. Here's President Obama. Plantation politics. Black people in the worst jobs. The worst housing. Police brutality rampant. But when the so-called black committeemen came around election time, we'd all line up and vote the straight Democratic ticket. Sell our souls for a Christmas turkey. Enough. Joe Biden won't represent us, defend us, or help us. Don't believe Biden's empty promises. The committee to defend the president paid for and is responsible for the content of this message. So Obama sent them a cease and desist letter. I don't know if they will cease or desist. I don't think they should. He did write that, and it does fit the, the ad. But remember that Obama was the worst president the press ever saw. He was he tapped their phones. He tried to uh, criminalize their actual process. Trump has done none of those things. So I think Trump made a mistake in who he sued. But I don't think it's wrong for Trump to call them out on the fake news because so much of this is fake news and so much of it is built on creating this atmosphere of hysteria that they hope will pay off now with the coronavirus. All right. The Daily Wire's own Matt Walsh has a new book out called Church of Cowards, a wake-up call to complacent Christians. Christians in other countries are still being martyred for the faith, but how many American Christians are willing to lay down their smartphones, let alone their lives, for their faith? 
Walsh breaks down the problems found in modern American Christianity. Ben Shapiro said this book, of this book, that Americans are going to church less often than ever before. Walsh explains why that trend must be reversed if America is to save itself and its founding principles. This rousing call to the real adventure of a living faith is a wake-up call to complacent Christians and a rallying cry for anyone dissatisfied with lukewarm faith. Pick it up on Amazon or at Barnes & Noble today. I actually think this is the major topic of the time. I think this is the thing we should all be talking about. So get Walsh's book and find out what he has to say. He's always really good on this subject. Also, this Saturday, February 29th, is Leap Day. That only happens once every four years. And in honor of this glorious occasion, we're about to offer you an amazing deal to become a Daily Wire Insider Plus member. Tomorrow, go to dailywire.com slash subscribe to take advantage of this very special opportunity. There's no coupon code needed, but this offer is good for tomorrow only, so it's extremely time-sensitive. It expires at midnight Pacific time, 3 a.m. For those of you on the East Coast, go to dailywire.com slash subscribe on Saturday, and you might find yourself taking the leap into a Daily Wire membership. Be sure to check out our website and anywhere you follow us on social media. I'll also be doing a Leap Day drop on my podcast feed so you can hear more about this deal. I know we're all really excited to share this with you, so go check it out while you have the chance. Remember, that's dailywire.com slash subscribe. And while you're at it, ladies, you know, propose to uh, your boyfriend. Okay, we'll have more from Ben Weingarten coming right up. Ah, Pardon me. Come over to dailywire.com and subscribe right now. Ben Weidengarten, <laughs> sorry, Ben, Ben Weidengarten is a senior fellow at the London Center for Policy Research, fellow at the Claremont Institute and senior contributor at The Federalist. His new book, American Ingrate, Ilhan Omar and the Progressive Islamist Takeover of the Democratic Party is out now. Ben, I'm sorry. I'm glad your first name, at least, is only one syllable. It's good to see you. How are you? Andrew, it's uh, always a pleasure. And thanks for that introduction. <laughs> so, uh, this is uh, this is a subject I'm really interested in. I haven't received the book yet, but I think you know we all hear the opponent, our opponents demonized, and sometimes it's hard to separate the demonization from the facts. You call this American ingrate. Why that title? I think that the sort of visceral reaction that Americans to have negative that Americans have negatively in response to Ilhan Omar is a result of the fact that. She has lived something beyond the American dream. She came from civil war torn Somalia to a Kenyan refugee camp where she was living under the threat of potentially bodily harm, uh, dealing with you know menial labor tasks, uh, disease, comes to America, gets out of that refugee camp and ends up rising from nothing to the height of power as, as I've been talking about a lot recently the campaign co-chair for the Democratic frontrunner, Bernie Sanders, in the pivotal 2020 state of Minnesota. She sits on the House Foreign Affairs Committee. She can say and do basically whatever she wants with impunity because the Democratic Party has completely caved to her. So this is no backbencher from Minnesota, one of 435 members of the House. This is someone who has accrued real power in a very short period of time. She has done all of this, and her response is to browbeat Americans 
badmouth our traditional values and principles, ascribe every single ill in the world to America being an evil, oppressive, colonialist, occupying power. And in her own words, she says that starts from our founding in genocide and colonialism and has continued through every single military engagement that we've ever had. She ascribes in speeches on the House floor everything that has happened in terms of refugee problems from the Middle East to economic calamity and terrorist attacks to global warming, which America is the number one contributor to. So she ties every problem in the world to America, yet she has benefited from being an American to a greater extent than almost anyone you or I can name. All right. Well, this raises a bunch of questions. Uh, let's start with this. What has there's all these rumors about how oh, she married her brother and she did committed fraud. Have you got anything on that? I mean, are those rumors true? Everything that has been put out there and documented in the way of social media accounts, marriage records, people not willing to talk on the record who oversaw that purported marriage, and just the timeline and address records of the fact that she marries this foreign national, he comes over to the U.S., studies in a time period overlapping her time studying at North Dakota State University. She had been with someone for eight years prior to that time and had two children with him. So she marries this new person, spends two years with him. They're living at the same address for part of this period as the person with whom she had fathered two kids. So three people in a household. He leaves shortly after completing his college education. She gets back with the person with whom she had been right after that point in time. They have their third kid within a year. And it goes on and on from there. And she has repeatedly obfuscated on this point. But even if this person is not her brother, and I think there's substantial evidence to indicate that he is, the fact of the matter is it seems like a very pretty clear case of fraud, or at the very least something that ought to be thoroughly investigated. So in terms of the notion of ingratitude, one of the ways that you show ingratitude is you flat our laws. And in the case of Omar, if she did, in fact, commit marriage fraud, she also committed a series of other crimes associated with that. And what makes it so dangerous is that that sort of background is compromising and the type of thing that would stop you from ever getting a basic security clearance. And yet this is someone who sits on the House Foreign Affairs Committee dealing with the most serious and sensitive national security and foreign policy information. Plus, as I document in American in great in great detail, there are all sorts of signs of collusion between her and adversarial foreign powers or at least corrupted in Islamist individuals representing those governments, both in Turkey and Somalia, as well as domestic terror tide groups as well. So put it all together and that ingratitude bleeds into animus and ultimately bleeds into a danger for America for someone that has accrued this much power and, again, sits on the House Foreign Affairs Committee. Uh, really interesting. Before I get to my, my big question, the, the last thing I want to ask is uh, so many of these, these people, especially on the left, seem to flout the law with impunity. Do you feel there's any chance of her being caught on any of these uh, crimes? Supposedly, there were three different federal agencies investigating at least around the marriage and immigration fraud issue. I think all you have to do is look at the double standard that has been applied in any number of situations. And look, if you're Ilhan Omar, you'd say, why wouldn't I continue acting with impunity? Because I've never paid a price 
for pretty much anything that I've done wrong. And I, I write in the book that a couple of the seminal caves in the Democratic Party were, first of all, her being put on the House Foreign Affairs Committee in the first place, given the pretty much anti-American views that she's espoused and her arguments for appeasing our worst adversaries, combined with the known anti-Semitic rhetoric, uh, which is just beyond the pale. The fact that, A, she was put on the House Foreign Affairs Committee, and then after she made comments about the Israel lobby, and it's all about the Benjamins and the like, the fact that her party couldn't even censure her by name and for her comments explicitly shows you that A, she is powerful, and B, they are very fearful of doing anything to punish her, which means that their party has embraced her, and that's why it's so symbolically and substantively significant that Bernie would make her the co-chair of his campaign in Minnesota. So short answer to your question, though, no. I don't think that anything is going to happen to her, but if we continue to get the truth out there, maybe there will be pressure on law enforcement to act, but it's sad that a political story is what's needed to make them act. That's a sad commentary. So here's my question. The book is called American Ingrate, Ilhan Omar and the Progressive Islamist Takeover of the Democratic Party uh, by Ben Weingarten. What progressive Islamist seems like an oxymoron. They love the gay people. The Islamists don't like the gay people so much. You know, they want freedom for women, not so much from the Islamists. What on earth? What is the connection here? The primary connection at the end of the day is that these are two ideologies that are totalitarian, really, when it comes down to it. They demand control over every aspect of your life, in the case of the Islamists, in terms of Sharia law, and in the case of those like Omar and Bernie Sanders, in terms of control over every aspect of your life, from every part of our economy down to abortion and the most critical issues in our daily lives and our social lives. So they unite over the fact that they have to dominate wherever they are. They are inherently expansionist. They don't allow you to live and let live. It's pretty much the opposite of sort of the libertarian ideal on either side. And so where do they unite? Besides the fact that there are there is a shared belief in dominating and expansionism, and actually you could argue colonialization in some ways, where does it ultimately end up? The stumbling block, the key battleground the key opponent of theirs is Judeo-Christian Western civilization. That is the one thing that stops them from dominating ultimately here and abroad. And so they are able to set aside those differences because they have a common adversary and that common adversary is you and me. I've only got a minute left. So quickly, why are they so afraid of her? Yeah, I think what it really comes down to is the fact that Democrats know that their progressive base is ascendant, is predominant, that Bernie is leading the Democratic field, is a perfect representation of it. I go into great detail in the book all the ways that progressives are dominating their party, starting with the amazing fact not really talked about frequently that the Congressional Progressive Caucus, when it started 30 years ago, had six members, Bernie being one of them. Today, of members of the House who are Democrats, over 40% are members of the Congressional wow. Progressive Caucus. So that is where the power in their party is. And then when it comes to a figure like Ilhan Omar, she perfectly personifies the sort of multiculturalist, intersectionalist, identity politics focused milieu, which in their worldview is the most virtuous, the most moral, the highest. And so she is uh, deserving of the most ardent possible defense. And then lastly, I think they know ultimately, and I make this provocative argument that ultimately they are going to trade Jewish votes for Muslim votes. And that's a provocative argument, and we can go deep into it, but it's in American Ingrate. American Ingrate, 
Ilhan Omar and the Progressive Islamist Takeover of the Democratic Party by Ben Weingarten. Ben, thank you so much uh, for this. I'm really looking forward to reading it. As I say, you haven't sent me my copy yet, but I'll get it eventually. Thank you so much for coming on. Good luck with the book. My pleasure. Thanks so much and appreciate it. Thanks. All right. A final uh, reflection. And this is in keeping with what we've been talking about, about the um, about the the fact that it is capitalism that cures disease, that it is capitalism that has kept us safe, that has made us stronger, that has done all the things that you, reduced poverty around the world, reduced the poverty. It will reduce poverty in a few more years. There will be no extreme poverty in the world if it continues on its capitalist path. Now I want to play for you Shapely Nudnik, Alexandria Occasional Cortex, right? She got up. What a... What a chit, C-H-I-T, you should look it up. <laughs> she gets up to lecture Congress on the fact that they haven't read her idiotic Green New Deal proposal. So she says, well, I'm going to read it to you. I'm going to tell you what it's going to do. Now, listen to this. This is the Green New Deal and how it's going to help uh, keep our, uh, stop climate change. This is uh, AOC telling the Congress how the Green New Deal is going to stop climate change. 100% of the power demand in the United States through clean, renewable, and zero emission energy sources and ensuring affordable access to electricity, guaranteeing a job with a family-sustaining wage, adequate family and medical leave, paid vacations, and retirement security to all people of the United States. Promote justice and equity by stopping current, preventing future, and repairing historic oppression of indigenous peoples, communities of color, migrant communities, deindustrialized communities, depopulated rural communities, the poor, low-income workers, women, the elderly, the unhoused, people with disabilities, the upgrading all existing buildings in the United States and building new buildings to achieve maximum energy efficiency, water efficiency, safety, affordability, comfort, and durability, including through electrification, by supporting family farming. A wonderful young bartender. So, so just remember, whether they're talking about the environment, whether they're talking about Islam, whether they're talking about tolerance, whether they're talking about race, whether they're talking about the coronavirus, it's all about the socialism. It's always about the socialism. And on our side, whether you're black or white, whether you're male or female, whether you're gay or straight, no matter who you are, it's all about the freedom. That should tell you everything you need to know until we meet again on Monday. If you survive the Clavenless weekend, we'll be here. I'm Andrew Claven. This is The Andrew Claven Show. Hey, if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to help spread the word, give us a five-star review and also tell your friends to subscribe too. We're available on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, be sure to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Ben Shapiro Show, The Matt Wall Show, and The Michael Knoll Show. Thanks for listening. The Andrew Claven Show is produced by Robert Sterling and directed by Mike Joyner. Executive producer, Jeremy Boring. Technical producer, Austin Stevens. And our supervising producer is Mathis Glover. Assistant director, Pavel Wydowski. Edited by Adam Saievitz. Audio mixed by Robin Fenderson. Hair and makeup is by Jessua Alvera. Animations are by Cynthia Angulo. Production assistants, McKenna Waters and Ryan Love. The Andrew Claven Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2020. 
On The Matt Wall Show, we're not just discussing politics. We're talking culture, faith, family, all of the things that are really important to you. So come join the conversation.